1: Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, ragers. Welcome to another full-length episode. I am giving you all another rewind this week, but for very good reason. I think this was a very great, very special episode that Keegan and I did together a few years ago back in 2021. I actually really remember recording this one very vividly because it was shortly after we both had our vaccines. We were finally recording in person again after doing so, you know, long distance for two years. And I really remember her telling the story of Maya Lin and me talking about Passy Takemoto Mink And I remember really, really enjoying the recording of that episode. And it's one that hasn't received as much love as some of the other episodes that are up on the feed. So I wanted to bring it up for all of you again to close out this year's AAPI Heritage Month. I hope that you all enjoy this episode as much as I remember enjoying it. And as usual, I encourage you to rage on. (laughs) So this week, because it is... AAPI Heritage Month, we wanted to cover some Asian American and Pacific Islander forgotten feminist favorites. And Keegan and I were talking about this in the beginning that it was a little bit difficult to find People that had a lot of information about them that have been well-known Asian-American activists throughout time. I'm sure there are many that have been forgotten and unmentioned. So it was hard, you know, I'd click on the Wikipedia page and it would be a very short excerpt right. on the person mm-hmm. instead of getting a full biography on their childhood and their life and all the amazing things they've done, Right. I you mean, know? It-
0: Yes, and so I know that we do forgotten feminist faves for this segment. However, there does need to be enough information available on the internet for us to be able to give you a good, you know, 25 minutes of yes.
1: of their life. And that's the thing is that there's so many people that I read about where I, I see little excerpts of them and then I'll, I'll Google them on my phone to see if, like, that would be a potential person for me to talk about. And it's always upsetting when really it's only that one excerpt you see over and over and over mm-hmm. again and there's nothing more to talk about when you really feel like that person has more of a story to tell. Well, and
0: of course they do. And I will say, it, it should speak to kind of how difficult this was that I'm looking at who you're doing and that was on my short list. Yes. Because there really were um, not that many. And then I also forgot that I was like, oh, Asian American because I had gone down yeah. an entire different route, which I, I feel was like too. we should absolutely do that another time. But uh-huh. I had gone down a completely different route of you know, Asian women or Asian feminists in other countries, like Asian-born yeah. or, you know, people from other countries. Yeah. And I was able to find more that way, but then I was like, oh, no, it's AAPI month. Yep. So we should do an Asian-American
1: Asian or American. Yeah. Well, Pacific Islander It really woman. did narrow it down. So I actually chose someone else, and I'm not going to mention it because I don't want to put this person on blast, but I was, like, finished with my notes until the very end when I read that this person had a allegation against them for sexual assault even though it has been um disproven it was a lie this person didn't do it I still felt kind of weird about it so I did switch my person kind of last minute what's funny is I started my notes on this person changed my mind did the other one almost finished it and then had to like Cram the rest of this person's story, but I luckily had like half of my notes for this person done already.
0: Sometimes that happens. Like, yeah, that's, it's true. It's like I've had that happen many times for both podcasts, for this one and for my other one. Where yep. I'm just like, I'll go down a story and be like, okay, I'm gonna do this thing, and then I'll get halfway through, be like, you know what? I don't know if I'm actually that inspired. Leave it. Yeah, and then
1: maybe come back to it later, or like, you'll meet, or you'll read one thing where you're like, oh no, no. Like I remember I worked on another feminist fave once, and it was like way down the line that it was uh, she had enslaved people in her home. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, no, I'm not going to celebrate this person. I can't celebrate this person now. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, okay, yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. Oh, why'd you have to ruin it? I mean, we also understand that
0: nobody is flawless. And sometimes... Sometimes you can get around that by being like, now we want to point out.
1: Totally, but there's (laughs) also. But not always. Yeah, and there's certain things for me personally that, like, with the sexual assault allegations, even though it's been disproven, I personally feel weird about celebrating someone where that has happened. I just... Because I don't know how everybody lies on it. I don't know the truth of the story. It just makes me feel uncomfortable, well, and you know? You don't have to justify yourself to me, Madigan. Well, I'm trying to just my, justify myself to my listeners, too, Keegan. Well, it's they, not just you I'm talking to. You don't to. have to justify yourself to them, either. You're going to present them with a wonderful story... Thank you for talking me through that, Keegan. You're welcome. Thank you. I
0: feel like you're being really hard on yourself right now. (laughs) You don't need to. Hi, have you
1: met me? My name's Madigan. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, well, I'm going to be talking about Patsy Mink today. I have an Aunt Patsy. I called her Oppie growing up because I couldn't say Aunt Patsy. I think Patsy's really cute. I love the name Patsy. Like, super short side story about that aunt, which is funny, is that, so she thought she was named Patsy after my grandmother, who was Patricia. So she Thought she was Patricia Haggerty, you know, junior or whatever. And when she was 18, she signed up to be a stewardess. And so she had to sign up to get a passport for the first time. And when she did, she gave her name, Patricia Haggerty, and her social. And they were like, that person doesn't exist. Her name was actually Claire. And her mom never told her. Pardon? Uh, my grandma was something.
0: But why?
1: I don't know. She did a lot of drugs, That's I don't so know. weird. Isn't that bizarre? And then she had to legally change her name to Patricia Patsy. Isn't that crazy? That's weird. I know, it's nuts. I, yeah. would, I would have a
0: really hard time with that. I really feel like I would have an identity crisis.
1: Well, she also poked my dad's belly button with needles until it like deflated and wasn't an Audi anymore. So this woman was not with it all the time. I remember
0: you telling that story... Uh, Yeah, I I forgot that you told that story. And again, I feel like I'm mentioning My Worst Date a lot already on this episode. That's
1: totally fine. I'm a My Worst Date fan, so you can mention it. Thank you so much. But that's where you told that story was Mm -hmm. on... We did a
0: crossover episode right before lockdown yep. on My Worst Date, and so listeners, if you haven't heard Madigan tell that story before, it's because it was on the My Worst Date feed, and you should go
1: find that episode and yeah. listen to it. I think I talk about belly buttons for a really long time on that episode. I have a lot of feelings about belly buttons in my belly. Mine, you can't touch it. It hurts if you touch it. Well, you have
0: some deep, weird trauma because I, think I do. Grew up hearing about someone's belly
1: button being poked with needles. I think you just solved the problem. I keep thinking, I'm like, do I have a tumor in my belly button? Like, why does it hurt? But I think you just solved it all. So, all right. We- You're welcome. That'll be $1,000. <laughs> oh, shoot. Can I bill you? <laughs> sure. All right. So, that's a whole aside of why I enjoy the name Patsy. But um, this Patsy... Uh, Her maternal grandparents were both born in the Empire of Japan during the 19th century. Her grandfather, Gojiri Tatayama, arrived in the territory of Hawaii in the late 19th century and was hired to work on a sugarcane plantation. Have you ever been to Hawaii? No, and I really, really, really want to go. It's lovely. I know. It it seems like it's the place that I should vacation. It feels like the only place I should vacation, yet I've never been there. It is legit paradise. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I can't. I I don't know why I'm saying this to you other than just to,
1: you should go. I want to. It's not like I don't want to go. I would love to go. Uh, so, Gojiri eventually moved to Maui where he worked for an irrigation company as well as having three other jobs where he was a store manager and a filing station employee and a mail delivery person. So, this was... um Yes, this was Patsy's grandfather. So, you know, very much like what we would think of as being a very traditional immigrant story coming to this country with nothing, working three or four jobs to try to put food on the table for your children to make the American dream happen for the next generation to come. Uh, Pasi's father, Sumasu Takamato, was a civil engineer after graduating from the University of Hawaii in 1922, and he was the first Japanese-American to graduate from the university with a degree in civil engineering. So her parents, definitely her father, also had uh, a lot of importance on... Education, creating a good life for yourself uh, He was definitely a trailblazer He was the first at something And I think that that was definitely inspiring for Patsy as a child For a long time, her dad was the only Japanese-American civil engineer Working at the Maui sugar plantation And he was constantly being passed by for promotions While his white co-workers would get those promotions mm. After World War II, he moved his family to Honolulu and started his own land surveying company. Patsy was born on December 6th, 1927 on the sugar plantation camp on Maui. When I said I was like on Maui, but I was like, it's an island. Yeah. So it, it would be on Maui. That's in Maui. It is
0: weird. It you sounds know? weird, but yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I I learned this. Uh, so I I know the word sensei. When I think of sensei, I think of uh, like taking tea to karate, and that's his sensei. But I guess there's also the word sensei that means a third generation descendant of Japanese immigrants. So Pat C would be considered sensei, from what I've read. Never heard that before. She began grammar school in Maui at the age of four, then moving to Kanoa English Standard School in the fourth grade. Kanoa English School was primarily white and was only attended by students who could speak English and pass an entrance exam. She was able to go to that school, but she felt really isolated and found the people at the school to be very unfriendly, so she wasn't very happy in her elementary school. One year before the island was attacked by Japan, she entered Maui High School. Although local Japanese were seen as the enemy, Patsy still ran for student body president her senior year and won. So although there was a lot of racial tensions, and this was her Maui High School, which sounds like she kind of was able to find her people a little bit more in high school than she was when she was younger. But while there was all of this really intense... Ra- racial tensions happening around her, she was still kind of seen as a very popular and very, very well-liked person at her school. I can't imagine what it must have
0: been like to be Japanese-American... During that time. During that time. we But we've talked about that, you know, many times when we talked about Japanese internment camps and, um, and, and things like that. But to be particularly on the island, or in Hawaii... Oh, yeah. ...when Pearl Harbor happened. I can't imagine.
1: No. Oh, my gosh. I can't... And that's why I expected this story to go in a very different way at this point i was very surprised to see you know there's a picture of her of her in school with all of her friends and she was actually the first girl ever to serve as president of the student body ever so she was really really respected and liked and apparently really really cool she also graduated as valedictorian of her high school in 1944 so girl be smart she then moved to Honolulu and attended the University of Hawaii at Manoa, with medical school and a career in medicine being her dream. She was also elected president of the Pre-Medical Students Club and was on the varsity debate team her sophomore year in college. In 1946, Passy made a big life change and finished her education at Wilson College, a small women's college in Pennsylvania. She wasn't happy at the school in Pennsylvania and trans- transferred to the University of Nebraska pretty quickly, which when I read that, I was like, Nebraska? Like, why do you think it's going to be better in Nebraska? Wait, where was she? She was in Pennsylvania. Okay. And then, so she's like, you know what's going to be better? If I go corn to the corn. That's where I'm going to really fit in. So this university had a longstanding racial segregation policy, which made students of color live separately from the white students, which was very not okay with Patsy. So she organized a group of students, parents, administrators, employees, and alumni of the school, along with sponsoring businesses and corporations to create the unaffiliated students of the University of Nebraska, which she was also made president of. And this group was so successful that they were able to lobby to end the segregation poly- policies the same year that they started this organization in the school. So it's be- like a big part of because of Passy that the segregation policies at the school went away. Yeah,
0: I love that. I love when that happens when we do this episode where we find little things like that because it really does go to show you that it's like one person who just stepped in and was like, "Nah, They were like, you know what, nah, like, this is not okay with me, and so we're going to change the entire system of how this shit is run, because I personally am not fucking having having it at
1: all. Yeah, and though she had a lot of success at school and, you know, was able to make this huge, huge change at the university, she was experiencing a serious thyroid condition in 1947 and had to return to Honolulu to recover, so she finished her last year of college there, and she received a bachelor's in zoology okay. and chemistry in 1948, then began applying to medical schools. Like I said, at first it was like medical school was her like number one dream. She applied to dozens of schools and was turned down by every single one of them stating that she was a woman. And that is all that was stated in the articles that I was reading, but I also wonder if... Uh, being a woman, but also being an Asian American woman, if that was also hindering her chances Surely. of getting into medical schools. But yeah. when I read it, they just said women, but I think that there's also, obviously, another layer to there's that. There's a lot of shit that is often unspoken, you Yeah, know? and I'm sure that that was part of
0: it. And I'm sure if they hadn't been letting women in... Previously, they weren't going to start.
1: Yeah, and there was a, a whole thing about, you know, when all the veterans from World War II came home, they wanted to make room for all the male veterans to be able to get those spots to go into the school. So it wasn't a priority to make room for female students in medical school at that time, I guess. So, super shitty. So, she worked a few other jobs, and at one of them, a co-worker encouraged her to consider a career in law, which makes sense. You know, she won every, you know, election that she did in school. She has, uh, she was on the debate team. She's super smart, and this really made a lot of sense to her. So, she applied and was accepted to the University of Chicago Law in the summer of 1948, and they admitted her as a, quote, foreign student, and I added that because, it was there, but I don't, and I guess that would be because Hawaii was a territory and not a state I yet.
0: I I guess I don't understand how that would work. Yeah. Because, for instance, would we consider somebody from Puerto Rico to be a foreign student? Like, it is a...
1: That's actually a really good question. I don't know. I feel like we shouldn't. Yeah, because technically it's all still our territory or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I hate the way that that I was going to say, like, it's super shitty that it is, but, like... Yes, but
0: that's interesting. If you know the answer, listener, please let us know. Yeah,
1: because I was thinking, and I was like, well, it's got to be because Hawaii wasn't a state yet, and so she was coming in. I'm sure it was. I'm sure that that was the justification
0: for it, but I mean, I don't know. I still wouldn't necessarily consider that foreign, but I suppose
1: what else... What's the other... I don't know. Yeah, bizarre, right? Yeah. But she was... There was only two women in her entire class at the University of Chicago Law, so she was definitely in the minority uh, with the sexes there. Though she hated the cold winters and the tedious classes, she was also, again, incredibly popular. Imagine at this school. Imagine going from Hawaii
0: to Chicago to Chicago, like. Chicago's a cool city, but y'all, it's so
1: fucking cold there. It's so cold. I've only done the two polar opposites in my trips to Chicago. The first time I went was for an audition in the middle of January. Cold. And I wanted to die, but it was so much fun that I didn't care how cold I was. And then my best friend Katie lived there for like three years, and I went there like in August one year, and I was sweating my... I was just sweating everything (laughs) off of me, you know?
0: Chicago's the coolest city, but the weather is so like, it's... I, I don't think I could live there just no. because I'm like, you get you do get both extremes. It's like, you're going to get humidity, and you're going to get like cold, cold winters. Yeah,
1: I couldn't step outside without feeling like... In the summer, I couldn't step outside without feeling like I was soaking wet. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Um, but again, very fun. So she was living in something that was called the International house at their school so it sounds like all of the again because she was a foreign student apparently so all of the foreign students lived together in this house and she was like super popular there and like really well liked and I one want night her
0: magnetism
1: right exactly well she definitely did have magnetism because one night she was playing bridge in the international house when she met a man by the name of John Francis mink and John was a former Us Air Force navigator and World War II veteran who was taking geology classes, and they were like totally smitten with each other and wanted to get married, but Patsy's parents did not want them to get married. It didn't go into that any further in the things that I read. Again, I kind of had to last minute get this out, Um, but they went through with it anyways and got married six months after meeting in January of 1951.
0: First of all, wow, that's fast. Yeah secondly can i ask a question yeah is he white i don't believe so okay so okay it just made me wonder because i wonder what her what her parents what their problem was with him because it's like he's a geology student at the same college
1: that your daughter is going to that's a great question you know the first picture that shows up oh well this would make sense Here we go. Husband of Patsy Mink. Yes,
0: actually, he is a white man. I wonder if that was a thing. I wonder if it was just like they wanted her to marry somebody within their culture. This is total speculation. Totally, but but I didn't even... I because, didn't even Google the picture of the husband, so I didn't even think of that. She is at an age where I feel like at this time, it would be kind of commonplace for her yeah. to be getting engaged, getting married. Now, maybe they had different expectations. Maybe they wanted her to finish school before she got married or something like but that. But
1: I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that that could definitely be a possibility, but it, it could be other things, too. But, yeah, they only knew each other for six months when they got married. Maybe and then, that was
0: it. They were like... Patsy. <laughs>
1: Patsy. has slow. We know that you are like so full of like life, girl, but you've got to tone it down a I'm little. I'm always the person in the friend group who's like, slow it down. <laughs> and I'm like the opposite. I'm like, are you having fun? Just fucking do it. Do it feels good. Oh, yeah, no. whatever. Uh, but that's Keegan no. <laughs> just wanted to like crawl <laughs> out of her skin with me saying that. Um, but that spring, she obtained her Juris Doctor degree and John graduated with a master's in geology. So they both graduated together and were able. To- power couple, power up. puckle, power pa- puckle, sure, that's something to say. That's nothing. Um, so after school, Passy really struggled to find work because she was married, she was a woman, she was Asian American, and apparently. Hiring married women at the time was not very popular. Hiring an Asian American married woman at the time was even less popular. Maybe
0: her parents knew that. Maybe they 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 did. I don't know. Because you already have all this shit stacked up against you, and it's just going to make it harder.
1: Maybe, yeah. And so she had been working in the library at the University of Chicago, Uh, when she was in school, so she was able to go back there and work that job, and John found work in the U.S. Steel Corporation, so he was taking care of the family for the most part, and she was working in the library of her college. They had their first child, Gwendolyn, or Wendy, who would later become an educator and work with the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association. Patsy still needed to pass her bar exam, but when she applied to do so, her residency was questioned. Now, this is something I'd never heard of, and this is absolutely crazy. So there was a territorial law at the time regarding married women where if you were a United States resident, or in her case, a Hawaiian resident, and you married someone who was not your citizenship or your residency would be taken away and you had to take your husband's. So she was in Hawaii wanting to get the Hawaii bar, but she was technically no longer a Hawaiian citizen. She was a Pennsylvania citizen, even though she'd never been there. Okay.
0: This is some That took a lot for shit. me to get it out, but that's what it is. Look, like, yeah. I really feel like it's important to point out that, like, does this does anything else illustrate better how like women weren't people. They were basically just like an extension of, of their the husband men in their lives. Yeah. Whether that be their fathers or their husbands. Totally. Like, that's so Wild that yeah. like you're a citizen of a
1: place you've never been because your husband is from there and that you're not make... a citizen of where you've literally spent your entire life? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So that doesn't exist anymore, obviously. But at the time that's what was going on. So she fought this. She wasn't just gonna be like, okay, yeah, you're right, and just not go after getting her bar exam. So she proved that she had never lived in John's home state of Pennsylvania, which led to the Hawaii attorney general ruling in her favor, allowing her to take the bar as a Hawaiian resident. When she passed the test in June of 1953, she became the first Japanese American woman licensed to practice law in Hawaii. While we would see this as a very good reason to hire someone being the first at something, this didn't do much to help her get hired by any law firms. Not even other firms that were headed by Japanese-Americans wanted to hire her because she was a woman.
0: People get freaked out when there's no precedent. We can be excited about being like, oh, you're the first, but at the same time, it's like, you're the first. So we don't know how it's going to work. We don't know how it's going to work out because apparently Japanese-American women are a monolith. Yeah. Right? And it's like we've never had one before. So yeah. we have no clue how how y'all
1: respond to the work because it's gonna be so different, you know. But and I guess another issue was that she had a child. You know, they thought that because she had a child she shouldn't be working in a law firm. She should be home with her child. So that was another thing that she obviously wasn't gonna take lying down. So with the help of her father, she actually started her own private firm, which then made her the first Asian American woman to practice law in the Hawaii Territory. So she's just doing the first left, right, and center in this story. She took cases in criminal and family law, which I guess at the time other firms typically liked to avoid, which when I think of law, I think of criminal and family law first. I'm trying to think of what other...
0: Well, I think there's a lot of, like, white... Like white collar
1: law. Yeah, that's probably that makes more sense. profitable. That's a good point. That's a good point. So she was willing to kind of take uh, things on that other lawyers in the area wouldn't look at. And around this time, she also started the Everyman organization, which is a group that serves as a hub for the Young Democrats Club of Oahu. So while she was killing it as a lawyer, she is always an activist at heart and began to involve herself further into politics. She worked on the congressional campaign for John A. Burns in 1954, though he lost the race. The following year, she worked as a staff attorney in the 1955 legislative session and drafted statutes, and it was there that she was able to kind of see the inner workings of how legislature works. When Hawaii debated statehood in 1956, Patsy Mink was elected to the Hawaiian Territory Legislature, representing the 4th District. I wrote 4th, but I think it was supposed to be 5th. I think that was a typo. I think it was the 5th District in the Territorial House of Representatives. And again, she became the first woman with Japanese ancestry to serve in the Territorial House. And two years after that, she would become the first woman to serve in the Territorial Senate. When Hawaii became a state in 1959, Patsy ran in the Democratic primary for the state's at-large U.S. congressional seat, and she unfortunately lost. From 1962 to 1964, she served in the Hawaii State Senate, so she is now starting to kind of move up a little bit. During her time in legislature, Passy was known for her liberal views and independent decision making. On her very first day in the office as a congresswoman in nineteen fifty-five, she submitted a successful resolution protesting British nuclear testing in the Pacific. Her first day. She's like, I'm just gonna get some shit done. Coming right in away. hot. Yeah, exactly. She worked on legislation regarding education, employment, housing, poverty, and taxation. She authored a bill in 1957 to grant equal pay for equal work, which we are all okay. very familiar with. Yes. In 1960, she became the vice president of the National Young Democratics Club of America and worked on the Democratic National Convention's platform committee drafting team. Can I just say that
0: her advocating for equal pay for equal work, that... Early on, mm-hmm. really does speak to how long she'd been in the game because that's a woman who's tired. Like she's, she's like over it already. Yeah. I have been a lawyer for so long, and well, I've had and, to
1: see this bullshit. And first, I tried to be a doctor. You wouldn't let me be a doctor. I. You wouldn't let me take the bar. You wouldn't let me into all the law schools I wanted. Like everything she was going up against. And she's like, now I first. have the job. Yeah. Now I
0: have the job, and now you're not paying me the same as you're paying fucking Jeff. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I Fucking pissed, Jeff.
1: Right? It's always Jeff. It's always <laughs> Jeff's fault. She gained recognition that year at the National Convention in Los Angeles when she spoke on the party's position on civil rights, urging equal opportunity and protection to all Americans. And this was in 1960. So then she became a U.S. representative. She wasn't quite done climbing that ladder, and she had her eyes on a federal seat. So she campaigned and won a post in the U.S. House and became the first Hawaiian woman elected to Congress and the first woman of color elected to the House and the youngest member from the youngest state as well as the first Japanese-American woman member in Congress. Wow. A lot, right? Right. Yeah. So she would be in office from nineteen sixty-five to nineteen seventy-seven, where she continued to focus on the issues that mattered most to her, which were children, education, and gender equality. In the late 60s, she introduced the first initiatives under the Early Childhood Education Act, which includes the first federal childcare bill and bill establishing bilingual education, school lunch programs, special education, student loans and teacher sabbaticals. I'm always blown away. I'm sure that listeners are sick of hearing us
0: say it every single time we do a forgotten feminist It's like we're surprised we're... these people do great things, well, you know. <laughs> it's not even that I'm surprised they do great things. I'm surprised they do so much. I know. I'm I'm exhausted just listening to it, because I'm like, when do you sleep? Like, when do you do anything but this? Like, this is, it has to be the only thing you do, or else you are just so incredibly gifted that your brain can...
1: Branch off. I think that's gotta be it. That it's like she's just innately talented at doing these things and also super smart and has a lot of conviction. Like I think it's just that it's thing about amazing. her that makes it get done. Um and along with, you know, early childhood education and things like that, she also promoted adult education, Asian studies, career guidance programs, and vocational education. The daycare bill she passed in 1967 was the first bill of its kind to pass both houses in Congress, and it was passed in 1971, but then vetoed by President Nixon. Fuck you, Nixon. In 1970, she became the first Democratic woman to deliver the State of the Union response and only the second woman to respond to the address ever. So there's a lot of stuff that she does in Congress Uh, So there's no way that I could list every little amazing thing that she did. So I'm going to skip ahead a year to 1971. And she was upset by the rollbacks by the Nixon administration of civil liberties and the continuation of the Vietnam War that she entered the presidential race, hoping to become the Democratic nominee, which made her the first Asian-American woman to run for president. Wow! Crazy, right? Had no idea. I didn't either. Yeah, so Hawaii didn't have a primary, so she appeared in the Oregon ballot of the 71 election as a, quote, anti-war candidate. During this time, she flew to Paris with second wave feminist Bella Abzug, which if you guys Uh don't know a bit about Bella Abzug, she is a very interesting, colorful character, um, to press for the resumption of peace talks to end the war. So they were going to Paris and promoting the, I'm blanking on what it's called, the Paris Peace Agreement?
0: That sounds right to me.
1: Is that it? It does sound right. Right? Okay. Oh, and apparently this wasn't super popular, this move that she did with Bella Abzug to go to Paris and do all these talks to the point where a campaign began in her home state to oppose her in her next term of Congress, which was Horrible, And she did end up losing the presidential primary because of a lot of this stuff and the really bad press that she That's was getting. That's not surprising to me. Yeah, they really, I think, like... These women are getting uppity and out of pocket. Yeah, and they're going all the way to Paris and trying to do, you know, they're doing too much, you know. So she earned only 2% of the potential 50 delegates. So she really, really did not do as well as she probably would have if they had left her alone, you know. She gave up her seat in Congress in nineteen seventy. So she could run for a vacant spot in the U.S. Senate, she lost the primary election. But President Jimmy Carter appointed Patsy as the Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs because the names always have to have like twenty words uh-huh. in them. Uh, so there, she worked on issues like deep sea mining, toxic waste, and whale protection. And she was there until May of 1978, working for President Carter. She returned to Honolulu in 1983, where she was elected to the city council, where she served as chair until 1985. She ran for governor of Hawaii in 1986 and mayor of Honolulu in 1988, but was unsuccessful on either bid. Still. I know. Again,
0: the energy. The energy it takes to run for office even once. Yeah. And to run for office this many times, successfully or not. Yeah. In fact, I would argue it takes more effort. I was run. just going to say, to
1: run unsuccessfully and to keep going. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like the thought of her trying and then not getting it, and then trying and not getting it. I know for me, if I'm not good at something, I don't do it. And if someone is telling me I'm not good at something and I'm not getting elected, I'm going to stop doing it. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think probably the thing for her is that she knew she was good at it. Yeah. And it was probably infuriating to her that she wasn't, like, Being successful at it because she is good at it. Yeah. Like, this
1: is some bullshit, and she probably knows that, you know? Yeah, but I love that she also was able to find other avenues of ways for her to get her goals met and to have the changes that she wanted to see. Uh, so after leaving city council, she led the Hawaii Coalition on Global Affairs, which was a group that sponsored public lectures and workshops on international issues. So really great way of helping inform people about things that are happening all over the world. So, she returned to Congress. She was elected to complete a term in the House for her successor, Daniel Akaka, in 1990. And then, six weeks later, she was elected back into a full term and then was re-elected six more times after that. Also in 1990, she opposed the Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas. No. I know. So... They talked a little bit about it in this, and I don't think we touched on it a whole lot when we were talking about Anita Hill, but there was a time where the Senate Judiciary Committee was not super open to having Anita Hill testify right away. And this really upset Patsy and a lot of other Congresswomen. So they marched to the Capitol to protest this decision. And they say that it was partly, you know, these female activists doing what they did that helped put the pressure on Joe Biden and the Senate Judiciary Committee to let her come forward and tell her story. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
0: Exactly. (laughs) It's so upsetting, but... This is why we need diversity. This is why we need representation. Because it took women being able to be like, yeah, you can't silence a woman's story. Yeah.
1: Like, she needs to be able to
0: tell her own story. And
1: you can't put this man on the bench without hearing everything that you need to hear about this person. You have to go in with all the knowledge that you can, right? So, I'm glad that they were able to do what they did to support her. From 1990 to 1993, she worked on legislation sponsoring the Ovarian Cancer Research Act and amendments to the Higher Education Act, which she had helped create decades earlier. And actually, in 2002, Congress would rename that act the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunities in Education Act. She co-sponsored the Gender Equality Act in 1993 and pressed for universal health care, as well as introducing a bill to protect reproductive decisions as an individual right. In 1994, she and Representative Norman Mineta of California co-founded the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, to which she became chair in 1995, serving for two years. And she also served as the co-chair of the House of Democratic Women's Caucus. Busy lady. So this is where it gets really sad because on August 30th, 2002, Patsy was hospitalized in Honolulu due to complications from chickenpox.
0: Oh well, you know they say that like the if you younger don't you get, can it. get it, because. I knew people who did not get it as children who then developed shingles. Yep. And shingles is insanely painful. My dad has had shingles. It was really, really bad. Anthony had shingles. And it, it, like... I've rarely seen Anthony in pain like that. Like, but
1: I thought that if you have had chicken pox, you have the shingles virus in Or you. is that how it I works? I think it might be that way. But
0: either way... But
1: they say that it could... But if you get chicken pox, because I think you have to have had chicken pox to get shingles, but I think it's that if you have it, your immune system, for some reason, I think it's just... It weakens it too much. Like, I remember when I had... I mean, I don't remember, because I was two when I had chicken pox, but my mom tells me that um, my cousin... Richard was visiting from Kansas, who was, like, a few years older than me, and I was, like, obsessed with him. They let me hug him all I wanted, all weekend, because they wanted him to get the chicken pox, because he was the only one who hadn't had it yet. So, I got right. to give my cousin chicken pox. They
0: do not want you to get it when you get older. Yeah. Because it is much harder on the system. That's why people have, and look, it's weird, and I don't know that I support it, but, like, people have chicken pox parties, like, when one kid gets chicken pox in in preschool they bring all their kids over so they can yeah. all get it like super young uh but you know which is weird yeah but at the same time understandable if you've never had it and you get it when you're older it is yeah a lot harder. you know
1: now i think it's i think it's pretty rare for kids to even have chickenpox now with the vaccine because uh, i remember tea never had chicken pox that's
0: interesting. I think it's now kind it of becoming common. a thing of the
1: past. Yeah, when you we know? were
0: kids, it was very common. Everybody, everyone had. got it. You know, yeah. yeah.
1: I think I have a couple chicken pox scars too on my body. There's a few that just look like little dimples, and I'm like, I bet that was from like me scratching at. Chicken did you pox get an oatmeal something. bath?
0: That's what my mom always did. She you put know, us in a bathtub with oatmeal.
1: I don't remember. All I remember about having chicken pox was that I was a flower girl. I was two, and I was a flower girl at my cousin's wedding, and that and, and I probably remember from the pictures, but I remember having calamine lotion all oh, over me. So yeah. I have, like, the pink like, dried spots all over my body and I was, my mom told me I was just miserable but I don't remember any of it, so. Well, she was too
0: young to be a flower girl anyway. I'm gonna go
1: on the record and say <laughs> that.
0: As somebody who is planning a wedding, that's, don't make a
1: two-year-old be a flower <laughs> girl. She doesn't want to be there. I was a great, oh, I think I probably did. I was a ham. But you were two. I was two, but I liked attention. So, I bet I was great at it. Chicken pox and all, I bet I did a killer job. Um So, her, conti- her condition steadily worsened and she ended up dying of pneumonia at the age of 74 on september 28th 2002 so that was when suddenly everybody is naming things in her honor all this stuff is happening so that's when i discussed that one of her original bills that she had helped create was renamed in her honor Also in her honor, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld ordered all flags at military institutions to be lowered to half-staff. Wow. Yeah, she was honored in a state funeral on October 4th in the Hawaii State Rotunda. And this is so beautiful. So women's groups attended the funeral and honored her by forming a lay of around 900 women who surrounded the tent where Patsy's casket stood and sang Hawaiian songs. wow. How beautiful is that? She was buried at the National Memorial Center of the Pacific. Her death occurred one week after she won the 2002 primary, too late for her name to be removed from the general election ballot. So on November 5th, 2002, Patsy Mink was posthumously re-elected to Congress. (sighs) Her vacant seat was filled by Ed Case after a special election in January of 2003. And also the year she passed away in 2002, she was indicted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And that is Patsy Mink. That was a well-loved woman. Oh, very. Clearly. She's so cute, too. Like, she really just seems... And I hate calling women cute like that because I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way. I just mean it in a way of, like... When you see somebody that has such a sweet face and a sweet smile and a sweetness to them that you can kind of see through the photos, she was definitely one of those types of women where you can just, you can, you can see why she was so popular and so well liked because she just seemed like she was just a little cinnamon roll of a woman. Yeah.
0: Some people just have that. Magnetism. I wish I had that. Like that just kind of thing. You've, that, got, you've
1: got your own magnetism,
0: Keegan. Thank you. It is different, though. <laughs> I was not winning any student council presidencies <laughs> in my high school.
1: Oh, man, no one in my high school knew who I was until I was, like, a senior and did a school play, and then I was, like, the weird theater kids, so. (laughs) I definitely wasn't running for any class president elections, either. nor did
0: I want to, but even if I had, like, I feel like everybody in my high school knew who I was, and I was very non-offensive. Like, I was liked... In a lot of different groups, yeah, it same. wasn't
1: like a. It, but you weren't like popular. I was the same way. Yes, like I could sit. I would always find a group of people to sit with at lunch. But it was like it was it was the band geeks, or the theater geeks, or the kids that are younger than me that were in my gym class, or you know what I mean. It was always just like in, random groups. I could fit in with anyone, but it wasn't.
0: I wasn't winning any popularity contests. Yeah, you know what I mean? But
1: who wants to win popularity contests in
0: high school? I mean, For if the you're most patsy, part. Patsy seemed like she managed to deal with that very well. That's
1: true. And, you know, I do think of, there was a a girl in my high school who, like, was always student council president, like, she was just, like, always doing all of that stuff. And I can picture Patsy as being very much like that girl where she she almost seemed like an adult already, that like she could be a CEO. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, just very in charge of her shit. This girl was also on the debate team at my high school, which Patsy but you was. you know what? I really
0: feel like that could go one of two ways. It's either, like, you're really popular and that's your personality type, or you're, like, Paris from Gilmore Girls, and everybody's like, no. You but
1: know what I, I mean? I also feel like because in schools, like, the popular kids don't want to spend their Time working on organizing the homecoming dance and things like that. They wanna Fair. they want to get drunk and go to the homecoming dance. So it's almost like, well, this girl's gonna be good at it and she wants to do it. And so Let Pepsi well, have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So
0: today I am going to be talking to you about Maya Lynn. So I first heard this story on Drunk History, <laughs> uh, but I watched this on Drunk History, and you know I love Drunk History. R.I.P. Drunk History. I'm so sad that it didn't get picked up for another I don't know season. How? It's because of COVID. Oh, they, totally. They but... transitioned entirely to animation, and because it's easier to produce.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: it's just it costs less, and and all that stuff. But Drunk History, it was always my goal to just be famous enough to end up on Drunk History. Like I don't want to be Brad Pitt. I just want to be like at the level where they might call you to get drunk
1: and tell I think some history friend, stories, you know what I mean? I think my friend Preston is on an episode. He's an actor. He isn't, like, a big actor or anything, but I want to say well, I like, saw an exactly. episode. Like, he's not he's not a Brad Pitt at all, but I think he was... Well, he's also friends with Derek, Well, but, but most <laughs> people who end up
0: on Drunk History are not... Like, they're they're comedians. They're, like... Or they've yeah, had a few TV Well, spots. the girls
1: from My Favorite Murder, I remember, were on a few years ago, things like that, where they're maybe not, like, the best-known people to, like... Joe and Tom off the street, but, you know. It's similar to podcasts. Yeah, right? Where yeah. it's just, like, it's going to be guests who have, like,
0: maybe a couple TV credits, but mostly it's, like, uh, comedians. It's yeah. Like, and that's, I was just like, I just want to be that. Yeah. I want to be, like, I want to be at that place where I can be on Drunk History, you know, because I have like, that looks like the best time. That looks like so much fun. We need to
1: do a Drunk History live show where we have to tell a feminist favorites while drunk. We'll do
0: that on our Patreon when we get our Patreon.
1: (laughs) That'll be, so if you want to see that. We'll have to retell our stories like five shots in. A hundred percent.
0: Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. And how he rose from nothing
1: to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So this episode is, it's the underdog episode, and it's the same one that has Colin Hanks doing Mr. Rogers.
1: Oh, I haven't seen
0: either of those. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's a good one. It's all in the same episode. But, so Maya Lin... Um, she was born in Athens, Ohio, on October 5th, 1959, and I put in parentheses, Libra, (laughs) question mark? I'm getting really good at this. And she is a Libra, and I fucking love Libras. So if you're a Libra and you're listening, we get along real well. So. Oh, good.
1: I've been following more astrology pages on mm-hmm. Instagram, and I'm so—I just love it. I still don't know that much about it, but I'm learning. See, there are certain people—so today is my friend Thomas's
0: birthday, so uh-huh. shout-out to Thomas, happy birthday, and he's a Taurus, and a lot of my friends are Taurus— Tauruses. Like Tauruses and Pisces get along really well, and Libras and Pisces get along really well. So How about Cancers and Pisces? Well, we're very similar because well, we're, we're both water signs. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, like, we get along well. I don't know if in general that's the case. It's probably hit or miss because it's a lot of it's a lot of emotion. I mean, I'm <laughs> a
1: crab and you're a fish, so maybe But
0: we live in the same body of water.
1: That's true. We can coexist together. Yeah, just we can fine. coexist. That's what's important for us to talk about right now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Our listeners are like, could you please get to it? We're in person again. Like, this is going to happen. I'm sorry.
0: So, Maya's parents emigrated from China to the United States when it became clear that their families might be threatened by Maoist revolutionaries. So, separately, both her mother and her father left China. Okay. So, her father came in 1948, and then her mother in 1949, and they settled in Ohio before Maya was born. Her father, Henry Huan Lin, was a ceramic artist and dean. Ooh. I know, and dean of the Ohio University College of Fine Arts. Her mother, Julia Changlin, is a poet and a former professor of literature at Ohio University. So very artistic parents, and even more so, she's the niece of Lin Huiyin who is an artist and a poet who is said to have been the first female architect in modern China. So Ooh. she has a very artistically inclined family. Yeah, it's very, in her very, blood. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So she was a fairly shy, unlike Patsy, she was a fairly shy and introverted kid who really liked school and went out of her way to take additional courses at Ohio University in addition to her high school work. So on top of her high school work, she's like, granted both of her parents worked at the university, but she's like, I am going to take additional courses in my spare
1: time. Was that something you could do in high school where, so there were certain AP classes at my school where you could take them at the local community college so you would leave school to go to the community college? community college and take an AP class at the college instead of one at the school. Yes. Yeah. I think you did have to have a certain, like... You had to, like, apply and get in yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You had to have a good You're grade point average. Enough. And, yeah, I told I mean, I never would have got. I was in one AP class in high school, and it was psychology, but... I almost failed math. So, yeah, I don't know. They were probably like, no, Keegan. They pulled me out of math and just stuck me in, Hun- in Huntington Learning Center <laughs> because I was failing so bad. They're like, we just need to pass you. Yeah, so, like, we just gotta get you through this yeah (laughs) same let's just get you through graduation and then whatever you're going to do with your life don't have it have anything to do with math (laughs) and I was like agreed done (laughs) I agree
0: with you uh but okay so she was taking courses at the university and while taking courses there she developed an interest in sculpture and learned to cast bronze in the school's foundry She graduated from Athens High School in 1977 and then went on to attend Yale University, where she majored in architecture. In 1981, the Vietnam War Commission decided to hold a competition to design a memorial dedicated to the fallen American soldiers of the Vietnam War. Though Maya was far from a professional architect, Uh, She was surrounded by the effects of the war, and it greatly impacted, as we know, and we've discussed, I'm sure, many times, it greatly impacted every part of American life. When when the war was happening, the Vietnam War, uh, popular culture, just everything about Maya's upbringing was inundated with images of the Vietnam War. And this was also the first war that was televised. So
1: it was in. People's living rooms. Yeah, <laughs> they were and, able to and see and it the was, horror. Yeah, and it was something that was watched, uh, like like the nightly news. Like it was, it was consumed in in almost every household all the time. You know, it was a lot of violence being brought into people's homes for the first time. When war had always been more of a abstract, exactly more mm-hmm. of an idea rather than something that you were seeing, and you were seeing this brutality for the first time. And I can imagine. Being an Asian American at the time, ha- feeling a sense of fear because although this is Vietnam, you know all sure. all of these cultures are different. I can still see where uh, white people don't always respect uh-huh. that or understand mm-hmm. that, and I can I can imagine that being Asian American also during the Vietnam War. And maybe seeing people that you can connect with who are being killed over in Vietnam and things like that, I can also see where that could be mm-hmm. a really difficult thing to process growing up. And she was quite
0: young, yeah. Like when it was was going on, I mean these these are her like early years, it's about her, mentally, like
1: yeah, they're her formative years. So it's yeah. something that she understands really well because it's all she knows, I bet, you know? Right, and this was a particularly,
0: like, okay, all war is brutal. I don't want to say this was a particularly brutal war, but I want to say that, like... But this was
1: just senseless.
0: And for the West, as well, where there was just, like, we have this idea, war is kind of taught to us even now in school as being this kind of, like... I still picture it as, like, a game of chess. It's like Revolutionary
1: War. It's Uh like, we advance,
0: we retreat, we, like, come to agreements, and we... And this was not like that. No, there was
1: no... There was no rules. It was incredibly... Grizzly and dangerous and violent and so, and people were just so, so, so much killing.
0: Young people are being drafted. Like, it was just, it was really tough.
1: Yeah. And so that's kind of, like, the environment she grew up in. So while... Yeah. Oh, by the way, there's a great 10-part Ken Burns documentary oh, Ken about the Burns. Vietnam War. And they talk from, like, all different perspectives. Vietnam soldiers, American soldiers, things mm-hmm. like that. I've only seen bits and pieces of what Max has watched. He watched the whole thing. But what I watched was so good. I highly recommend it. I want to go back and watch the whole thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and so while she didn't have a lot of first-hand experience, like, a good friend of her her childhood friends, so, like, her school friends in high school, Uh her father had been drafted and died overseas. So she well, had, yeah, like, that is a very she personal attachment, yeah. Right, but it's not like it was a direct family member of hers. So a lot of people will say, like, oh, she didn't have a lot of, like, direct interaction, but the point that I'm trying to make is that it was impossible to not have this inundate every bit of your life. Of you course, know? of course, yeah. Um, um, kind of at this time. in. 1981, the profound psychological effect of the war on the soldiers uh, that were drafted, including PTSD, exposure to Asian Orange, and physical wounds that they received, would have been common knowledge. More than 300,000 Americans were wounded during the war.
1: Mm. So when
0: Maya heard that the War Commission was taking submissions for the memorial, she decided to enter. She wanted to commemorate the fallen soldiers with a fiercely modern design, which she created during her college architecture class. So cool. So her college professor, who also entered the competition, (laughs) criticized her work and actually gave her a B on her assignment. Up until this point, most memorials were in a classic design. So, think like lots of columns, lots of marble, lots of statues. Yeah. Almost in this like celebratory kind of fashion.
1: Kind of colonial. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, old-fashioned. And Greek, Greek
0: style. Definitely, yeah. And this was none of that, this design that she'd put together. So the design was V-shaped black granite wall that rose out of the earth and grew and grew in height until it met in the middle with the names of 57,939 fallen soldiers carved into its face in chronological order. So, one side of the V pointed toward the Lincoln Memorial, and the other side pointed toward the Washington Monument.
1: This is different than the Black Wall, where all the names are written. No, it is that. That's what this is? Mm-hmm. I didn't
0: know it was a, in a V shape. Yes, so it is. It's in a V shape. It comes out of the
1: earth and up into, like, a peak. Right. Right, yeah. I didn't real. i thought it was a solid— Wall like Mm -mm. just flat, I didn't realize it had more of a design to it. If you
0: look at it from above, you can kind of see that it is this like it's this V shape. Oh, that's so cool! Yes, (gasps) so So exciting. 1400 people entered the competition, which was judged blind, so they didn't know who was entering what, and um, her design was selected. People were shocked to learn that a 21-year-old Asian-American design student was
1: the winner.
0: Her- I bet she
1: was surprised, too. <laughs> she was like, okay. I'd be floored as a 21-year-old. Like, you want to do what with my design? What? Like- and her architecture teacher gave her a B and entered himself and didn't That qualify. is the best revenge you can mm-hmm. ever get on an authority figure. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you gave me a B? Okay. But it's also the confidence of her to do this
0: thing that was completely... There was no precedent for this type of design for a memorial. Nobody was yeah, doing memorials but this, like this. But this shows,
1: like, it doesn't... It really doesn't hurt to put yourself out there. Even right? if, if you have an idea. Yeah, even if you're thinking you're never going to get picks and you're 1 in 14,000, like, who cares if you're 1 in 1,400? 1,400. Yeah. Y- you never know. Right. Like, even if you don't feel like you're good enough or qualified enough, it's like, it doesn't hurt to at least just put yourself out Maybe there. Maybe you're exactly what they're looking exactly. for. Exactly. You know?
0: Uh, Her modern minimalist concept didn't sit well with the public, though, in general. They were expecting, again, designs that were more similar to... Because this was going to go in the National Mall. So where uh, the Lincoln Memorial is, the Jefferson Memorial, like all those things.
1: They were thinking of it being somewhat similar or more cohesive in their minds to that. Marble.
0: You're thinking about these, like, these various... And that's what we thought of as memorials. Like, it's going to look like this. It's going to be statues. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it didn't look like that. And a group of veterans actually protested the design, protested the design, claiming that it was an ugly insult that portrayed the war as shameful, dishonorable, and worth hiding. Quote, For too long, the veterans of that miserable conflict have borne the burden of the national ambivalence about the war. To bury them now... In a black stone sarcophagus, sunk into the hollow of the earth below eye level, is like spitting on their graves. People
1: were pissed. People are in their fucking feelings. Really? About a memorial. And and if enough people decided that it was good enough for her to win, it's so crazy to me that people are able to attach that much negative feeling to a structure. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's crazy. And, and part of me has a lot of empathy, because we're talking about veterans who
0: probably got drafted, had to fight in a war they didn't want to fight, and, and then were now, treated
1: horribly when they came home. Too. Right. So they were not welcomed home with a parade. They were treated horribly and like criminals when they were returning right. home. Right. And now
0: they're seeing drawings of this memorial that looks unlike any other memorial that's ever existed. Yeah. And they're probably thinking, like, why don't we get the giant statue. Like, why don't we get this thing that other people have had? Like, so I understand maybe being a little, like, off-put
1: at first. Well, and it's different. It's new. And I think that's always jarring to people as well, having it not match the aesthetic that they usually have. Absolutely.
0: However, I understand it far more coming from veterans than I do from people like radio host and piece of shit, Pat Buchanan. And Congressman Henry Hyde, they both launched a campaign to change the wall to a white color. They were like, it's black, it's dismal, it's ugly, we don't like it. So they were like, paint it white. Like, use white granite or, you know, something like that. Okay, queen
1: of hearts. Right. (laughs) Paint paint the roses red. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, And then they were like, also, we want you to paint it white and we want you to add an eight-foot sculpture of soldiers in the middle of it, like where it's at its peak Right? And Maya was like, absolutely fucking fucking not. not. (laughs) And not only did they criticize her design, they didn't like her design, but they also went after her age and ethnicity as reasons why the design should be changed or abandoned altogether. Yeah, I saw that coming. Right. Prominent businessman and future presidential candidate Ross Perot who had previously agreed to donate a large sum of money to the project, pooled his funding and went so far as to call Maya an egg roll.
1: <gasps> mm-hmm.
0: That's so mean! He's a piece of shit. That is so mean! He's a piece of shit. I mean, I imagine that most Americans, when they found out who was designing the Vietnam War Memorial, just like you were saying, yeah. they're not distinguishing between the fact that, like, she is... Chinese, or she's of Chinese descent. She's American, but she's of Chinese descent. Yeah, right. And all they're thinking is, we got out of this war with people who look like you. Yeah, you know what I mean. Exactly. Without taking any time, it and it doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter. No, okay. but I
1: but I think it's but I think it's a really good point to make because it shows. I think that it their does. State of mind. It shows their state of mind because I think that there is a lack of understanding to this day about the different you know, Asian cultures out there. So I would assume during that time, especially fighting a war with an Asian country, where I'm sure that there was a lot of racial tension.
0: Absolutely, yes. And she's also 21. Like, barely, she's barely 21 years old, and she's not even a professional designer or architect, right? she's a student. She's got a lot stacked up against her, as far as the public is concerned. Yes, but to her credit, because me, at 21... I would have been such a pushover. Like, she stood her ground. She refused to make any changes to her design. Well, she won. That's the design that won. So she should feel confident. And she's an artist.
1: Yeah. Right? And,
0: like, this is my art. You're asking me to change my art. And she went so far as to accuse Henry Hyde of, quote, drawing mustaches on other people's portraits. Yeah. She's like, leave it alone. I created it. Yeah, totally. So she said, quote, I just want to be honest with people. I didn't want to make something that said they've gone away for a while. I wanted something that would just simply say they can never come back. They should be remembered. Yeah. So the V shape of her design was supposed to symbolize a wound that is closed and healing. She described how you were meant to walk slowly down towards the center, coming deeper and deeper into the enormity of loss, and then slowly back up, gradually returning out into the world as it is now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is so beautifully symbolic for someone, especially of her age, to come up with, like... It starts kind of low, it comes in at a peak, and then it goes back down, and it's supposed to, like, you're you're enveloped. You're going
1: on a... It's almost kind of like you're going through the journey of, like, you know, a movie or something, you know, where everything is building up, and then you hit that climax, mm-hmm. but then you're able to let everything kind of settle before you leave again.
0: Right, right. You're enveloped in that loss. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where you're kind of like, when you're in the center of it, you're in the middle of, like, but then feeling you're, that loss. But
1: then you're able to release yourself from that and loss out. and go out into the world right. afterwards. Which and I think it, is an important thing that I think a lot of people forget, is it isn't just about remembering the trauma, but about moving forward from that as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in the way that she had it coming out of the ground is to
0: symbolize that it's a wound, right? Like, yeah. Like, coming born from the earth, essentially. Yeah. And that it comes in at a peak because, like, that's to symbolize where it's healing.
1: Totally, And, like, I yeah. just think that that is
0: all so beautiful. Like, yes. the way that she, she did that. So
1: well thought out. Very, very smart. Mm-hmm.
0: So, despite how hard Maya fought for her work, the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, which was in charge of the final design, decided to broker a compromise. They kept Lynn's design and added a sculpture that had won third place in the design competition, Frederick Elliott Hart's Three Soldiers Nearby. So, they put in a a sculpture of soldiers on the same area, but mm, it, it yeah. wasn't in the center where they had proposed it to be. It was, like, off to the side, so it's okay. not interfering so much with with her design, but still, she was really hurt by this, and she didn't even attend the compromise meeting. She's like, yeah. I'm not going to go. Like, this actually
1: kind of pisses me off, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as when they were trying to make it white or things like that. It, it, it's still changing her original design. Right. So, while
0: the critics were undoubtedly super loud, many Americans appreciated Maya's design. Spurred on by the activism of the, the wounded Vietnam veteran Jan C. Scruggs and sympathetic, sympathetic celebrities like Bob Hope, some 275,000 Americans, as well as business and veterans groups, donated $8.4 million so that the memorial could be built. Mm. While U.S. Congress had allocated three acres of the National Mall for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, funding for the project actually came from the people. It came from the private sector. It did not come from the government. That's awesome. So when the wall went up, there was a big celebration in which 10,000 veterans marched to the wall in commemoration. Yeah. When they did so, even many of Maya's most vocal dissenters were awestruck by the... Memorial.
1: That's something in the documentary that I watched. I think it was one of the last episodes where they were talking about different veterans' experiences with the memorial and how some, you know— weren't able to visit for decades after because of how painful it was or how it was hard for them to see the names and somehow it was a place where they go every, they go back every year and it's yeah. healing you know and different people's reactions to that memorial but all of them being a very very strong emotional response.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So thousands and thousands of names were carved into the granite so and the granite was so highly polished that you could see your own reflection in the granite, and mm-hmm. it was deeply effective because you have all these men in uniform, some of them who were just like, I don't want this memorial, like, this is some bullshit, right? And then they show up. They're in uniform, and they're looking at their friends' and family's names, many of whom they knew, yeah. and they're seeing their own reflection reflected back at them. It's incredibly powerful. And
1: that is That is incredibly powerful, and I think that is probably one of the things about the memorial that makes it so special, is there is... An aspect to it of reflection of being able to see yourself in it that I think would be really moving. My great uncle's
0: name is on the on the wall because he died. My grandma's brother Rollin
1: died when he was in his early twenties. He was drafted. Wow. I mean, I got very lucky. My dad was drafted and couldn't go because of his hearing, and my uncle went but he was a conscientious objector so he wouldn't carry a weapon and he never ended up having to Mm -hmm. he like raised his hand when someone asked if they wanted a special job and he ended up working in computers so he got really lucky
0: (laughs) i can't imagine like for my grandma like to lose your brother or or my or my great-grandparents i mean to lose your son in his early 20s that way. And yeah, Rollin Austin, he's on the, he's on the wall. It's a great name. <laughs> so today the wall is hailed as one of the greatest memorials of modern times. Visitors travel from all over, people with friends or relatives who fought in the war, search for their names and rub impressions onto paper because it's etched in so you can do that. Yeah. I always wanted to do that. If I go to DC, I'll, I'll certainly do that. That would be a great idea. Um, letters, medals, photos, and dog tags are left almost daily. To kind of speak to what you were talking about, in 2010, a study even found that visiting the wall multiple times can help Vietnam veterans better cope with post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Like, there was actually a study that was done that's just, like, if you go and you spend time at the wall, uh, it actually helps you cope with your trauma.
1: Definitely. And I think especially having the Vietnam War be kind of the, the start of our understanding of PTSD. Yes. I can see why those studies would have been done to an understanding of how to help those people. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Maya now calls herself a designer rather than an architect and continues to design iconic structures like the Civil Rights Memorial, which is a fountain and sculpture in Montgomery, Alabama that's inscribed with the names of activists who died during the Civil Rights Movement. And her minimalist abstract style has greatly influenced most of our most iconic memorials. So, if you look at memorials now, if you look at, like, the Oklahoma City Memorial, most memorials now are not these grand statues. Well, yeah, I
1: was thinking of Ground zero too. Yes, they're yeah. these
0: abstract kind of pieces, usually with names inscribed, and they're all directly linked to this Vietnam memorial that this twenty yeah. one year old girl came up with. So you know, cool. or woman came up with, rather. She became a member of the National Women's Hall of Fame and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama in 2016. Still, her most lasting legacy will likely be the wall that she designed as a 21 year old student, and she makes no secret of her belief that had the competition not been judged
1: blind, she would never have won no. on account
0: of her age. Her gender and her ethnicity. No, so. I mean,
1: I think as soon as you said it was judged blind, I'm like, that's the only way to do stuff like that because there's so much prejudice mm-hmm. in everything. That yeah. that's the only that's the best way to go about picking the best of something is to not judge it off the person who did it. Yeah, just off I this
0: design. I kind of I love her story. Like I know that. Oftentimes, we go into, like, oh, it's so much, and there's so much to, like, go into in, in this person's life, and I'm sure there is with her as well. Like, yeah. she's done a lot of things. Like, even those two things are more than most people, you know, <laughs> even if it was just the civil rights monument and just the... Right. Yeah, that's yeah. That's more than most people have to their name in their whole lives. Definitely. But... Sometimes all it takes is just one really great story. And, like, I think the story of her designing that monument is so amazing and, like, so cool. And she yeah. went and she stood up in front of Congress and defended her piece and was just, like, I don't want it changed. I This is what it means. This is what it means to me. And for them to be able to say yes with a, a small caveat of, you know, we're going to also do this other thing. But, like, for them to be able to say, like okay yes yeah you know we're gonna give it to you yeah as a 21 year old asian american woman is amazing
1: yeah definitely amazing All right, popping back in at the very end, because you don't need all of the announcements that we made two years ago. Instead, you need the announcements that I'm about to give you right now. Um, If you haven't joined the Angry Feminist Book Club, now is most certainly the time to do so. I know I've said this a few times before, but now you have a backlog of quite a few episodes and you really... Have to listen to the coverage of Still Learning by India Oxenberg that I did, not to toot my own horn, but I worked really hard on it. I think I have a lot of interesting insight and things like that. So if you're interested at all in learning more about India's story, how she fell into the Nexium cult, and how she was helped out, I definitely recommend giving those episodes a listen. There will be one more episode regarding that book, but it will be coming in June because that is when I'm able to interview her. So after you listen to those episodes and you want to ask India a question, please go ahead and comment that on the Patreon page. That is where I will be collecting all of the questions for her. And then the other announcement that I wanna make is super, super exciting because Pride Month is coming. So not only do I have some wonderful episodes planned, but I also want to do another coming out story episode this year. And that will be planned for the last week in June. The coming out episodes have always been my absolute favorite and I am so excited to do another one this year. So that episode will be coming out on June 26th, but I would really love to have all of your stories in by June 23rd. So if you could do that, that would be so so wonderful. I'm so excited to embark on another Pride month with you all. Thank you so much for listening to another rewind episode and for getting to know Patsy and Maya a little bit better again. Thank you so much and As always, with all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye! We are the hosts of Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are Sans knowledge. I'm Yen, a reader, writer, liver, and breather of comic books. And I'm Nat, and I know absolutely nothing about comics. Which makes both of us authorities in our respective fields. Exactly. Hey, wait On Comic Sans, I make Nat read some of my favourite comics Including Sandman, Saga and Laura Olympus And Yen tells me what makes that comic special Then I hear what Nat thinks And I try to avoid a pulmonary embolism While I actively try to give him one Listen to Comic Sans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Or wherever you get your podcasts You can already binge our first season And we just released a special bonus episode On Across the Spider-Verse Hey, Nat, before we go, I'll give you 50 bucks If you can tell me what Comic-Con is Is it related to Chili Con-Carn? Do you mean chili con carne? Maybe we should be chili sands.